I'm Tabby Smiley. We are delighted to have you along with us today. We are in hour two, and in this hour, one of the nation's most distinguished journalists, Samuel G. Friedman, joins us for a historical re-examination of one Hubert Humphrey and one of the most overlooked landmarks of civil rights history. I am always uh, humbled and honored when I am allowed to engage uh, with guests in conversation about things that I did not know. I say all the time that at our best, this program is about challenging folk to re-examine their assumptions, to expand their inventory of ideas, and to see the world through a different prism. Uh, I I say often, as you know, uh, that every day I walk out of the studio, I leave a little bit smarter than I walked in. And this hour is going to uh, uh, aid and abet that notion of, of, of making me a little bit smarter about uh, political history in this country. And I think you'll uh, enjoy uh, and be empowered by this hour as well. Um, Samuel Friedman uh, is our guest. Uh, his book is called Into the Bright Sunshine, Young Hubert Humphrey and the Fight for Civil Rights. I'm pleased to welcome Samuel Friedman to this program. Samuel, how are you today, sir? I'm doing well, Tavis, and it's a complete honor to be on your show again, and I always learn something from the time that I spend with you, so it's very reciprocal. You are kind. You are kind. I'm glad we have uh, another hour in our lives to spend some time together, uh, hopefully learning from each other. Uh, Certainly, uh, I'm going to learn from you in this hour. Let let, let me start with this, Um, and I I want the audience to hear the story about uh, a man who history has regarded, frankly, as a loser. I think it's fair to say that Mm -hmm. Hubert Humphrey has been regarded as a loser, uh, by American history, and you bring us a different way uh, um, into looking at what Hubert Humphrey accomplished, specifically on the issue of civil rights, which is vitally important uh, to my uh, and to this audience. But I want to start with this, uh, a broad question. I'm, I'm, the New York Times says of your book that it is riveting, a superbly written tale of moral and political courage for present-day readers who find themselves in similarly dark times a superbly written tale of moral and political courage for present-day readers who find themselves in similarly dark times. I don't know which readers, uh, what readers, which readers uh, the Times was speaking of, but no matter who they're talking about, <laughs> we are living in some dark times. Mm-hmm. So all readers in this society uh, must acknowledge that these are some dark times for our democracy. And I, I want to just start with a couple of broad questions about how you read these dark times that we are in, number one. And then I want to probe this notion of what you've learned about moral and political courage. Let's start, though, first with these dark times. Absolutely, Tavis. Well, the battle that Hubert Humphrey and his allies were involved in in the 1940s, which is the decade I mostly focus on Mm -hmm. in the book, is really the same battle we have now, and it's a battle of interracial interfaith, inclusive democracy against different forms of autocracy. And the terms that were used by the uh, autocrats in Humphrey's time are the same ones we hear now. Christian nationalism, white supremacist, America firstism. Mm. And so when Humphrey and the people who were on his side in this, people like the great labor and civil rights leader, Abe Philip Randolph, mm-hmm. and Walter White, the executive secretary of the NAACP, and Eleanor Roosevelt, the first lady who was far more progressive on civil rights than her husband, FDR, ever was. The, the battle that they were involved in, in the near term, was about things like desegregating the armed forces, 
getting a fair employment law, trying to put an end to lynching. Some of these battles we know took 50 or 60 more years to be won. Mm -hmm. But those were part of a broader effort to push back against segregationists like Strom Thurmond, um, America First people like this right-wing preacher Gerald L.K. Smith and, and Father Coughlin, and people whose view of America is that it was just a place for white Protestants, mm. that if you were a black or a Jew or a Catholic, you didn't belong. And this is another thing that's sadly true of some of the Trump era. The right-wingers of that era, like Trump, would say, we want to have a social safety net, but only for the people who we consider the true Americans. Mm -hmm. Everyone else, and this was literally being said in Humphrey's time, blacks, you should be sent back to Africa. Jews, you should be interned. Catholics, you can be allowed to exist as a kind of a second class of, uh, of Christians. And so the fact that we're fighting the same battle now doesn't mean that Humphrey and Randolph and Walter White and Eleanor Roosevelt and their allies lost. It means that what we learn from history, and it goes back to, you know, the rollback against Reconstruction, is that every time we have progress, especially on racial equality, that it means we're going to be met with backlash, and we can never assume the fight's over. Mm. And why do you think that is? Why are we always met with backlash when we take two steps forward? Well, what is it that Frederick Douglass said about power never surrendering without a struggle? Oh, yeah. So if you, ha if you have a country in which a lot of its population defines it as this is a country for white Protestants, and they are challenged, they're challenged by the emancipation of African Americans, they're challenged by massive Jewish and Catholic immigration between 1880 and 1924, they're challenged by the coming of Asian American and Hispanic and Caribbean-based immigrants, and they're challenged by moments when the government becomes more progressive, whether it's in passing Reconstruction in the 1860s and 70s, or whether it's passing the civil rights laws of the 1960s, there's a pushback. Mm. There's a an anxiety of losing power and losing status and losing your ability to define who gets to belong, mm. you know. And so, you know, it's no surprise to me, sadly, that the battles we're in now come right on the heels mm. of two terms of Barack Obama being president, you know, marriage equality being enacted by the Supreme Court. Um, these are threats to a certain kind of, it, of person. No, it raises fundamental questions. Uh, there are a few of them that are running through my head right now. One of them is whether or not, uh, to your earlier point, multiracial democracy is even possible. That's just one of the few things running through my head. We'll uh, get Samuel Friedman's response to that and a great deal more. We're just getting started in this hour, talking about moral and political courage in dark times. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. For all the freedom-loving folk, this is Tavis Smiley. I feel like freedom. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. Just getting started, really, in this hour, talking about what... Um, a. Philip Randolph and Eleanor Roosevelt and Walter White and uh, Hubert Humphrey were up against then and what we are up against now. There were dark times then. We are living through and in dark times right about now. I haven't even gotten yet to the kind of moral and political courage that's needed uh, in a moment like this where our democracy is on the precipice. 
But um, uh, our guest is Samuel Friedman, as I mentioned. His book is called Into the Bright Sunshine, Young Hubert Humphrey and the Fight for Civil Rights. Um, History has regarded Humphrey as a loser, no question about that. And leave it to Samuel G. Friedman to give us a different way to look at Humphrey, particularly as it relates to civil rights. I'll get to that as we move through this hour. But let me start with with this fundamental question, uh, uh, I think pivotal question, but, uh, but fundamental nonetheless. Uh, Samuel, and that is whether or not, given what you said already, you believe that multiracial democracy is even possible. We now live in the most multicultural, multiracial, multiethnic America ever. And one could argue that that very reality, that that is the nation that we're living in right now, would suggest that we're doing it. And yet, frankly, I could give you a a number of other examples that suggest that we aren't doing it and that we're not doing it well and that we may never do it well. So I ask you, sir, whether or not you believe that multiracial democracy is possible. I think we have to believe it's possible. If we become pessimistic or cynical or hopeless about it, that's what the right wing extreme wants. They want people like us to be paralyzed by the idea that we can't make progress. But we've had that progress in the very recent past in, you know, in the coalition that was the Obama coalition that elected him twice and, you know, in some ways reconstituted itself to elect Joe Biden um, in 2020. And, of course, the specter of a true multicultural, interracial, interfaith, you know, coalition being in power in this country is deeply terrifying to, you know, white supremacy is deeply terrifying to Christian nationalism. And that's why it's not just that we see, you know, the political side of, of Trumpism, because it's bigger than Donald Trump. It's the whole Republican Party. It's why you see outlawing teaching black history, mm-hmm. you know, outlawing taking an AP class in black history in, in the state of Florida. Um, the, the fact that knowledge can be passed along and that great black art could be celebrated that's an incredible challenge, or that, you know, books buying about gay people could be in libraries. That's intolerable to people on the other side. And that's why we have to keep mm. pushing, because if we if we relent, they're not going to stop. They're 24-7. Yeah, but if I, if, if I were going to argue, you, you're, you're my friend and brother, so I'm not going to argue on this point, but if I were going to argue on this point, uh, that we have to believe that multiracial democracy is possible, my Exhibit A would be what you just put your finger on. Look at the, 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 the blacklash, if you will, or the white lash, if you yes. will, that we got to the election of Barack yeah. Obama. Does that not suggest that multiracial democracy may be impossible in this country? Just that factoid alone. I think it means it's going to be severely contested. Yeah. And it means that we have to keep fighting for it. And it also gets to, I think, a really key point, Tavis, and that I think at our best or most optimistic, and maybe we've been too optimistic, there is an idea that you could change the minds of mm-hmm. haters. And I think what we're realizing more realistically is that while some individual minds may be changed, what you have to do is have laws and social norms that at least make the haters keep it private or more underground. Um, one of the things I did in my book is um, I wrote a lot about um, two of Humphrey's most important friends and allies in Minneapolis when he was mayor there, a, a black newspaper publisher who I'd love to talk to, talk about more later, named Cecil Newman, who is just a mm-hmm. magisterial figure in black journalism, and a, a white anti-defamation lawyer named Sam Shiner. And I went back to Sam Shiner's 
daughter and Cecil Newman's granddaughter, who still publishes his newspaper to this day. And I asked his granddaughter, Trace Williams Dillard, about her reaction to the murder of George Floyd, which took place like six blocks from her office, by the way. And I asked Sam Shiner's daughter, Susan Druskin, what did you think when you were watching the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville um, on television? And neither of them said they were surprised. Mm. They both said that, you know, their grandfather and father, respectively, had said to them in pretty much the same words, the haters don't go away, they just hide. But what you can hope for is to make the, the legal and social sanctions against them strong enough that they can't exert themselves and feel like they can literally, uh, t- you know, run a coup mm-hmm. like Tario and the Proud Boys did just, you know, within recent memory. And I think that's the best we can hope for. Mm-hmm. And Humphrey's example and the example of him working with Randolph, I think, is instructive in a couple of ways. One thing <laughs> is that when my book kind of culminates at the 1948 Democratic Convention, which is when the Democrats fully endorse civil rights for the first time ever. It's a Mr. Inside, Mr. Outside operation. Mm-hmm. Humphrey's inside the convention hall getting ready to give this spellbinding speech that's going to get the delegates to endorse civil rights, even though Harry Truman doesn't want it to happen, and even though the Southern Dixiecrats are going to walk out. But outside the hall, A. Philip Randolph is leading protest marches every day mm-hmm. because he was leading a campaign for black draft resistance. He was urging young black Americans, since it was an all-male army at that time, don't register for the draft, don't serve if you're called up, until America desegregates the military. Because how can we brag about how we defeated the fascists, you know, the Nazis, Mm -hmm. and still have a segregated army? And Humphrey and Randolph's aides were exchanging letters after that convention that I read, and each one is saying, we couldn't have done it without you. You needed mass mobilization, and you needed political skill on the inside. And I think that's one yeah. enduring lesson. Either one without the other is not going to make it. No, there's a, lot, there's a lot to unpack there. Let me, just, let me start with this. Um, to your point about Humphrey on the inside and Randolph on the outside, you did an inside game, outside game. I, I totally concur, and I, I, I received the point. It's just worth noting, just to put a, foot point, uh, a footnote on that, that after all the the uh, the organizing and protesting that Randolph did, uh, leading uh, ultimately Truman to decide that the uh, military in this country needed to be segregated, as you well know as a brilliant historian and writer, uh, black soldiers on their way back uh, to this country um, from helping to win that war uh, and save the world from fascism had to sit in the back of the train behind Nazi war criminals. Uh, It's one thing, it's one thing, Samuel, to have to sit on the back of the train. These Negroes offered themselves up. Um, They uh, um, went and put their lives on the line. Some of them obviously did not come home. Um, uh, Thankfully, the Tuskegee Airmen never lost a single plane they escorted. Their record was was perfect. Uh, And yet, when these African soldiers, these African-American soldiers, these black soldiers, Negro soldiers, colored soldiers on their way home, they're not just sitting behind the white boys on the train. They have to sit in the back of the train behind the captured Nazi war criminals, Sam. Absolutely. And, you know, it got worse than that. um, There were a series of violent and often fatal attacks on black war veterans when they came home. And this is part of what inspired 
Randolph and, and Humphrey to take on the issue of desegregating the military. There was, in the most notorious of these cases, Tavis, a sergeant named Isaac Woodard, who was in his uniform, and the, you know, the, the rednecks of the South found it intolerable to see a black man in uniform, mm-hmm. and especially a black man who would then register to vote or go, or go in the front door of the restaurant or, in Isaac Woodard's case, sit in the front of the bus. So he's on this bus going home to South Carolina, and he gets off in a small town to use the bathroom, and the local sheriff confronts him, beats him, and literally gouges his eyes out. Mm. And Isaac Woodard then went on after recovering to speak around the country at civil rights rallies to leverage you know, his wartime sacrifice and the terrorism inflicted on him on the home front um, on behalf of saying to America, and this was a key question after the war, okay, we defeated fascism, what are we going to do about the hatred at home? And there was an amazing letter I've read in my research between Hubert Humphrey and a guy named John Neumeier. John Neumeier was a young German Jew. He got out of Nazi Germany like the last minute in the late 1930s, made it to Minneapolis, enlisted in the army. Because he spoke German, he got assigned to be a guard at a prison camp for Nazi uh, POWs out in Nebraska. And he and Humphrey were corresponding. And Neumeier said to Humphrey, who was very upset that he couldn't get into uh, the military because of deferments, because he had kids and he had a double hernia, and Neumeier said, we don't need you to shoot a gun. We need you to fight the battle here. Neumeier saying, you should hear what the American GIs say about the war. They say that we fought this war because of the blacks. We fought it because of the Jews. We fought it because of the British. So your battle is at home. Mm. And that goes right to the point you were making earlier about, indeed, you know, black soldiers on duty or returning who would sit behind Nazi um, POWs. I've heard stories that Nazi POWs on bases in the South, they'd be taken off to see movies in the movie theaters that wouldn't let black people Mm -hmm. uh, sit in them at all, or had to sit way up in the balcony. Mm -hmm. So that revealed so much about the moral gaps in America then. Um, I want to get back to this issue that you raised a moment ago. This this is the sweet part of this story. Uh, Hubert Humphrey is just 37 years of age when he gives this major speech in July 1948 that really does change uh, the narrative on civil rights in this country. I'll let Samuel Friedman unpack that story for you in a moment. But before I get to that, let me stay with this. Uh, we were, were, were talking, uh, you, you were talking, I was talking about, uh, again, these black soldiers having to sit behind with Nazi war criminals. And to your, your point, uh, they would take these Nazi war criminals to go to see movies out of the prison that black colored folk couldn't get into these theaters. Uh, and, I was with I was with uh, my friend Cornell West uh, a couple weeks ago. We were in Mississippi for the annual Emmett Till uh, anniversary celebration mm-hmm. weekend. So every year in Mississippi, where they of course murdered Emmett Till, yeah. Mississippi is the state of my birth. Um, they they have a week long uh, celebration of um, of Emmett Till. Uh, just a young man, of course, when he was murdered, but his legacy is. Um, uh, is indelible. His imprint uh, is indelible on the history of this country and what came from that. Rosa Parks will tell you if she were here, she was thinking about Emmett Till the day she sat down mm. on that on that bus. So um, his legacy um, and the impact of that legacy is is still to be uh, wrestled with even today. But Dr. West very quickly was was making this point, and I, I, I I've been noodling on it and marinating 
about it. I'll see him in a couple of days for another event, and I'll talk to him about it when I see him. But I've been thinking about something he said the other day. And I think you'll get this, uh, Samuel. He was talking about the fact that what black folk needed then, since we're talking about then and now, dark times then, dark times now, moral and political courage necessary then, moral and political courage necessary now, what black folk need, needed then and now, Dr. West argues, are not white allies. Everybody talks about white allies. He makes a distinction, he did, between white allies and a white brother being in the band. <laughs> It, they're, they're two different <laughs> things. It's one thing for you to be an ally. It's another thing for Clarence right. to be in the E Street band with Bruce, with Bruce Springsteen. Clarence <laughs> ain't no ally. The brother is in the band. And uh, Dr. West ran through a number of these sort of analogies, as only Cornell West can, making a distinction about being an ally versus being in the band. And as, I'm, as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking about that because, again, in real time, what black folk need now when it comes to civil rights, and we'll get to the Hubert Humphrey story in a moment, are not just white allies, but folk who are willing, Samuel, to be in the band with us, if that makes sense. It makes total sense to me. And, you know, although I use the word ally sometimes to describe Humphrey in the way Dr. West frames it, he is much more a part of the band. And I'll give you a couple of examples sure. that really that really speak to that. Number one, very few people know this. When when Hubert Humphrey was, as mayor of Minneapolis, taking on the rampant racism and anti-Semitism in town and pushing through laws on fair housing and fair employment, he was almost assassinated by a neo-Nazi for that reason. Mm -hmm. He came home from, you know, his mayoral business one night in early 1947, and as he was fumbling for his door keys, three bullets whizzed by him. And the person who almost certainly did that shooting was a follower of a right-wing racist group in Georgia called the Columbians mm -hmm. that were later involved, by the way, in anti-civil rights bombings in Georgia. And he was in contact with them, had their material, had knives and guns in his possession when the police arrested him. Humphrey almost paid with his life. And after that happened... He didn't back down. He kept on pushing. He wasn't dissuaded even by almost being killed for it. Yeah. And to fast forward, right after his civil rights speech in 1948 and this remarkable vote by the delegates to endorse civil rights for the first time, he gets a telegram from Cecil Newman, the newspaper publisher I mentioned before, congratulating him. When Humphrey writes back to Cecil Newman, he says, this wasn't my victory, this was our victory. Mm -hmm. People like you mm -hmm. have been fighting this battle all along. You made this possible. So Humphrey understood who yep. he was standing with. He wasn't doing for, he was doing with. Yeah, I love that. Um, when we come forward, um, we've made references to it now two or three times, but I want you to hear more detail about how Hubert Humphrey, at just 37 years of age, um, convinces the Democratic Party in July 1948 at the convention in Philadelphia, um, he convinces uh, just 37, um, this party to do the right thing for the first time ever on the issue of civil rights. What did Hubert Humphrey say that day? They got the good white folk to do the right thing. We'll hear that story when we come forward from Samuel G. Friedman on Tavis Smiley. From the Mert Park with love, love this love. is Tavis Smiley. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. Our guest in this hour is uh, the brilliant Samuel G. Friedman, one of the nation's most distinguished journalists 
And I'm honored once again in my career to uh, engage him in dialogue uh, for an hour. Um, his new book is called Into the Bright Sunshine, Young Hubert Humphrey and the Fight for Civil Rights. We've been talking in this hour about what uh, uh, Humphrey and Randolph and Eleanor Roosevelt and Walter White and others were up against in that moment, that dark moment of American history then, and the moral and political courage was required, that was in fact required to advance uh, that moment. Uh, comparing that to where we are today, it's another dark moment. Uh, we are clearly uh, on the night side, the dark side, one could argue, of this American democracy. Uh, and uh, there's going to be a, a great deal of moral and political courage required uh, to get us through the moment that we are in now. We will get to that because I, I don't see that moral and political courage uh, uh, on display right now. And we'll talk about that as we move through this hour. But I, I, I don't want to get too, too ahead of myself because what I, what I want to hear and want you to hear is the story of how a young 37-year-old Hubert Humphrey uh, took the podium at the July 1948 Democratic Convention in Philadelphia and convinced Democrats for the first time ever to really advance a, a true narrative, um, to do some real work uh, on the issue of civil rights. So tell me, Samuel Friedman, what Hubert Humphrey said that day at 37, they got all these folks in line behind him. Yeah, thank you, Tavis. Uh, let me frame it a little bit contextually first. Please. Because the, the environment politically is very different in some ways from what we're living in today, in the sense that right now we associate the Republican Party with the party of racism, white supremacy, racial, structural, systemic inequality. But back in the 1940s, that was one part of the Democratic Party. The New Deal coalition that Franklin Roosevelt put together had, you know, people you'd expect in it, organized labor, immigrant Catholics and Jews, college-educated intellectuals. But it also had this devil's bargain of including the all-white Jim Crow Democratic Party in the South. And FDR had calculated that he couldn't win the election without the electoral votes of the Solid South, as they called it. He couldn't get his programs through Congress without the support of these very powerful Southern senators and congressmen. And so he appeased them. He let New Deal legislation like the Social Security Act be written to omit agricultural and domestic labor which meant a huge share of black workers in the South. He let New Deal programs be implemented locally, which meant Jim Crow states could implement them in a totally unequal way. And when it came to the party platform, he left any language of civil rights all vague and fuzzy and ambiguous so the white Southerners could claim it supported what they called states' rights, mm -hmm. meaning their right in their states to have apartheid. And by the 1948 convention... This was, to Humphrey and his allies, intolerable. It was morally indefensible. It was also morally indefensible amid the Cold War when the U.S. is trying to say to the soon-to-be liberated countries in Africa and South America, the Middle East, the Caribbean basin, you should align with the liberal democracy rather than uh, the communist system. And they're saying, how can we make that argument when we tolerate segregation, and the Soviet Union espouses racial equality. So that was another part of the moral um, vision of it. But Humphrey, as you said, he's a kid, politically speaking. Mm -hmm. He's 37 years old. He's held one office in his whole life, mayor of Minneapolis, only for three years. And he's going up against Harry Truman, 
who, though it points Truman had begun to move forward on civil rights, then he went in reverse, looking at the 48 election. He said, I'm going to do the FDR thing, you know, buy off the South with compromises, hopefully get their votes. Nothing about civil rights should be in the platform. Um, then you have the Dixiecrats led by Strom Thurmond, and a name you'll recognize from being a Mississippian, Fielding Wright, mm-hmm. who was the governor then of Mississippi and actually the creator of the Dixiecrat movement and the Dixiecrat party. And they're saying, if there's a word about civil rights in this platform, we're walking out and we're going to run a protest candidate. And the point of that, and oh man, Tavis, this is like the past of the present. Mm-hmm. Their point was to make sure neither Truman nor Tom Dewey won a majority of electoral votes, so it goes to the House of Representatives. And who's sitting in the pivotal position? All the white Southerners. Mm. They're going to get to choose the next president. Um, and Truman's people at the convention are telling Humphrey that if you give the speech, your career is over. Mm. Truman, in his diaries, calling Humphrey and the civil rights people crackpots. Mm. And Humphrey was definitely, you know, Part of him very filled with trepidation about giving his, his speech, but he had, you know, the support of A. Philip Randolph's mass movement marching. He had support from family members, and he even got the support, surprisingly, of some big city machine politicians who could see what the demographic future was and said, if our party can't appeal to black voters, you know, we're toast. Yeah. And, and then with all that, Humphrey gets up and... There are 60 million people listening on radio. There are 10 million people watching on TV, which was just starting to get wired through the Northeast. Mm-hmm. And he gives this speech, and the two famous phrases from it are saying that for those who say that it's too soon to move on civil rights, Humphrey says, I say it's 172 years late, mm-hmm. which when you do the math means going back to 1776. Mm-hmm. And then he says, to those who say this program is an infringement on states' rights, I say it's time for the Democratic Party to walk forthright, to leave the shadow of states' rights and walk, walk forthrightly, and as the title of my book, into the bright sunshine of human rights. And these are these two electrifying phrases, Tavis. And what's powerful, you can find the audio of this on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Listen to the booze. This was a big risk. Mm. Yeah, there was a lot of cheering in the convention hall. But there was a lot of booing, and it was so controversial that the convention was halted soon after, and they wouldn't let the vote on the civil rights plank take place till they gave like an hour-long recess hoping people would calm down. Well, it didn't calm down because what Humphrey's platform plank said was not general language support of civil rights. It said, desegregate the military pass anti-lynching legislation, outlaw the poll tax, also outlaw discrimination along the lines of of religion and national origin, which affected Jews, Catholics, Japanese Americans, Mexican Americans. So it was very explicit. And after it passed, a name that will live in infamy, no no other than Bull Connor, Mm. later the police chief of Birmingham, you know, starts this massive Southern protest, and they as threatened, march out of the convention hall. Mm. And um, two weeks later, Harry Truman desegregates the military and desegregates the federal workforce because they, the convention had given him no choice but to run on civil rights. Nothing like a little pressure. Nothing like a little exactly. pressure. Exactly. Uh, pressure brought by a young 37-year-old Hubert Humphrey. 
that made Harry Truman do the right thing. So for you historians out there, you history lovers, uh, we know the story that Truman gets the credit for desegregating the military. But now you know the backstory of how Truman got pushed to do that. Um, great presidents aren't born, they're made. And if you become a great president, you have to be pushed into your greatness. There is no uh, FDR if there's no A. Philip Randolph pushing him. Uh, there is no uh, Abraham Lincoln, to go back further, if there's no Frederick Douglass, uh, the aforementioned Frederick Douglass, pushing him. There is no LBJ if there's no MLK pushing him. Great presidents are not born, they are made, uh, and left to their own devices, they end up, how might I put it, being garden variety politicians. They'll never become statesmen if somebody ain't pushing them into their greatness. And so you know the story of Truman desegregating the military, but now you know how he got there. A young 37-year-old Hubert Humphrey pushed him and the entire Democratic Party in Philadelphia to put that plank in the platform. And the rest, as they say, is history told brilliantly and beautifully by our guest, Samuel G. Friedman. When we come forward, Samuel, I want to ask you whether or not you think there is some connection, some connection uh, between Humphrey still being... uh, uh, for the most part, regarded as a loser in this country politically. Is there a connection between that loser label and the fact that his greatest achievement, one of his greatest achievements, was advancing the notion of civil and human rights? I think you take my point. That's a loser agenda, right? So you you get regarded as a loser. Never mind the fact that you're the one that pushed the Democratic Party to finally take seriously the issue of civil rights. And but for this book, that history really has not been known heretofore. We'll talk about it more when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. Unapologetically progressive, progressive. unapologetically black. You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Smiley. More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned into Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Samuel G. Friedman, um, American history historians uh, have um, uh, long put the loser label on Hubert Humphrey. Here you come now with this story of what uh, Humphrey did uh, courageously to push the Democratic Party, to push that Democratic convention in Philadelphia back in 1948 to do the right thing on civil rights. My question is whether or not uh, that loser label has anything to do with the fact that one of his greatest accomplishments was, in fact, on the issue of civil and human rights. Um, I think it definitely is part of that. Look, I have to say, as part of the hit Humphrey took to his reputation is deserved. He came out in favor of the Vietnam War for a long time, um, and that was a mistake. He later owned up to it. He received the Democratic nomination for convention in 1968 amid the police riot against journalists and and anti-war protesters at the Chicago convention. And then, you know, he ran for the Democratic nomination in 72 against George McGovern, who's the peace candidate, and also Shirley Chisholm, he looked like the, Humphrey looked like the old tired old establishment. So to some extent, um, the critical, you know, disparaging view of him is is valid as far as it goes. Mm -hmm. But I think that what he accomplished in the 40s, and a lot of what the civil rights movement of the 40s was all about, including people like Randolph and White, has been ignored or forgotten. We often think that the movement begins with Rosa Parks and Dr. King and the Montgomery bus boycott and Brown versus Board of Ed, and, you know, moving forward valiantly, you know, heroically through the lunch counter sit-ins and the Freedom Rides 
and the civil rights legislation that LBJ and Humphrey and MLK pushed through. But in the 40s, there was an incredible amount of activity that set the table for all of it. And Humphrey has been forgotten for his role in that. And I think so largely have Walter White and A. Philip Randolph. They also don't get their props. You know their story. Your listeners know their story. But if you go to a typical American who thinks they know something about civil rights and you ask, you know, who was A. Philip Randolph, who was Walter White, a lot of people are going to come up blank. You know, Mm -hmm. parenthetically, it's one of the reasons I'm excited about this film about Bayard Rustin coming out. Because, you know, can help to fill some of those gaps. No, we had a great talk about Bayard Rustin um, uh, last week, I guess, on the 60th anniversary of the March on Washington. I started our program that day wanting our audience to be more empowered and more knowledgeable about the grand contributions of Baird Rustin's. We started our program all three hours that day dedicated to the history of that march 60 years ago, but we started uh, in dialogue about uh, the work and witness of one Baird Rustin. When we come forward, um, since you went there, I will follow you in right quick with the few moments I have left. Dr. King was right about the war in Vietnam, and he paid a heavy price for it. I wrote a book called Death of a King about the last year of his life and the hell that he caught uh, in part uh, for coming out to give that Beyond Vietnam speech. Uh, and so the end of his life is not as it was back in 63 at the March on Washington. Uh, but but I'm curious as to how Dr. King was so right about that and everybody else, including Humphrey, was so wrong. Samuel Friedman is our guest right now on Tavis Smiley. This is getting good. Yeah, man. Tavis Smiley, Tavis Smiley continues when we come forward. 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 Helping to make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley. There are a number of things, Samuel Friedman, that Dr. King was fond of saying that come to mind immediately, uh, not the least of which is that there is some good in the best of us, some good rather in the worst of us, some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. Mm -hmm. And King was clear that he did not have a monopoly on the truth. There is the truth and there is the way to the truth. And you got to be humble enough to know that there are others who are working their way to the truth and you can't be arrogant with the truth that you know, even as you're obligated to to, to say what you see, to share the truth with the public that you know at any given time. So King had a, had a humility about him when it came uh, to the truth and uh, others being um, you know, given the time to, to make their way uh, to the truth. That said, he, he, he held no prisons when it came to his critique, as you know, of LBJ and the war uh, in Vietnam. My question right quick, we've only got three or four minutes left in this conversation. I want to do two or three things uh, in that time. Number one, how did Dr. King get that so right? And and LBJ and McNamara and Humphrey and others get it so wrong. It's the worst. It's the worst I, part of American history. Uh, I agree that about them getting it wrong. And Dr. King, in his brilliant radicalism, which I use as a word of praise, getting it right. Sure. I think as Dr. King saw that there were efforts around the world to decolonize for countries to liberate themselves from the former empires, national liberation movements. And I think he understood that what was going on in Vietnam was part of that. And the alternate view, which proved to be a very flawed view, which Humphrey and LBJ and McNamara and others held, was this idea of the Cold War, that everything that's happening in the world, whether it's in Vietnam or Nigeria or Guatemala, you name it, is a gigantic chessboard on which it's the U.S. versus the Soviet Union. And, you know, and you have to fight against or use proxies to fight against anyone perceived to be a Soviet ally. And that turned out to be a really damaging 
you know, blinkered view of the world. Sure. And Dr. King's view has been ratified by history. Yeah. Um, so Hubert Humphrey, um, two minutes I have left here. Hubert Humphrey was wrong, uh, very wrong in 68, but morally and politically courageous in 48. He was obviously going in the wrong direction. <laughs> he, he, was, he was morally... Well, he always kept his yeah. views on racial justice. Yeah. Though. And, you know, he did do that. And one of the last things he did in Congress when he was back in the Senate in the 70s yeah. was try to push through a full employment sure. bill. So even after Vietnam, he held true to the North Star of his best ideals. So in these last 60 seconds, tell me what uh, the takeaway is from Hubert Humphrey when it comes to having moral and political courage in dark times like these? The takeaway, Tavis, in, in Into Bright Sunshine, is here's someone who gave up his white privilege mm. to work, as you said, in the band oh, yeah. with black Americans. He was a white guy from the tiniest little white place out in eastern South Dakota who had barely been around black people in his life till he went to grad school for a year at LSU, which blew his mind and opened his eyes. And he could have coasted along on being part of the white Protestant majority, especially in a place like Minnesota. And instead, he put his life literally at risk to work with blacks, yeah. to work with Jews, to work with progressives. And, you know, that's a life. Yeah. He is one of the best um, in our profession, one of the nation's most distinguished journalists, always honored and humbled to be in dialogue with Samuel G. Friedman. His book is called Into the Bright Sunshine, Young Hubert Humphrey and the Fight for Civil Rights. Uh, Samuel, thank you for the text. Thank you for the conversation. I appreciate you, sir. All the best to you, my friend. Well, thank you, my brother, for the honor of being with you. It is always something that makes me feel grateful. You're kind. I appreciate it.